Welcome to another podcast of Criminal Justice Cafe. Today we have Bill Lavolsi with us. And um, I met Bill, it's an interesting story. We have a Monday night support group, a white collar support group that I attend and Bill also attends. And I met Bill, wow, five years ago, right? Five years ago now? Yeah, it was five, um, yes. Prior to Bill going into prison, and I emailed with him throughout, and he's been home a year now and has been talking out and advocating for um, for others in our situation. So I'll let Bill say a little bit about himself. Okay. Um, yeah, as you as you mentioned, um, I, I'm trying to remember the dates, but it became real for me back in 2013 when end of 2013 the beginning of 2014 when i was brought in in a federal case on a superseding indictment um i mean the reality was the family had been dealing with it um since 2010 uh when the original defendant in the case which then i became co-defendant um was arrested on a financial crime and so it's been a very, it's been a long road. And yeah. so here, here we are, you know, almost 10 years later, a little over 10 years later, if you start from 2010 and it's been, it's been, it's been quite, it's been quite a journey. Um, but as you mentioned, I'm really grateful to be home. Um, yeah. I, I was fortunate to get out. I was sentenced to 24 months. Um, in 2015, um, through uh, some good lawyering uh, by my lawyer and a compassionate judge, my co-defendant and I were able to get staggered sentences. Um, and so I did not report until she finished her term, which was, she got out at the end, yeah, at the end of 20 beginning of 2019. Um, and then I reported in March 26th of 2019 and got home April 30th. Oh, and yeah. April 30th of, yeah. of, uh, of 2020. And here we are. Yeah, it has been a row. We, we had a meeting last night with a support group meeting we do on Wednesday nights with just women Mm -hmm. And a lot of women are coming home early. And I think, um, as, as you know, our audience, what I like to do is try and educate the communities on what prison is for people who have committed a financial crime. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's, there's such a big stigma associated to it. But we had one woman who was transitioned into a prison camp and originally got two years. After six weeks, because of COVID, she got trans. Uh, she got transitioned into a halfway house, and then in two days after that, she got transitioned again to a to home confinement. After losing her entire, she lost her home, she lost her family, her husband, mm -hmm. um, and now she's staying at a friend's house and has to serve her sentence for the next two years at a strange environment with right. very strict rigid rules. And I think that a lot of people 
have this misconception of home confinement. We talked about it last night that it's tough. I mean, you're on probation still, right? I am on probation. I'm, I'm serving, I'm in the middle of serving, um, my, my, my supervised release, but also part of my sentence was home confinement of nine months. Um, so I had home confinement, um, through, uh, from last year till the end of December for, um, because of my early release from the CARES Act. And then now I'm serving the home confinement. That's part of my sentence. Um, and while, you know, I, I, I'm not going to complain because I'd rather be home, of yeah. course. But of course. yeah, I mean, it is, there are pretty strict rules. And yeah. especially if you are still technically in custody, there are super rigid rules. And yes. you just have to, you just kind of have to find ways to adapt. Yeah. Um, but I can't. I can see how, it, especially if you're in a strange environment, that has to be extremely difficult. Yeah, I um, the, the rules that she has are very, very rigid. I mean, not saying they shouldn't be. I mean, she's being mm-hmm. she's in, incarcerated in custody right. at home. But I think that a lot of times uh, communities don't understand that. And um, it, it's kind of like the waiting. How long did you wait until you had to self-surrender? Well, um, my co-defendant, she served 39 months on a 45-month sentence, so 45 less 85%, it were less 15%, so about 39, 40 months. I mean, and that worked out really well because it had a, had it was an opportunity, you know, for me to prepare, but also mm-hmm. work with the family and make sure that the kids were prepared for, you know, one coming home, the other leaving. Um, and it gave me more time to make sure that there was a support system in place for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that worked out. You know, the, the thing is, I mean, one of the things is that I think people in general have a misconception about, you know, who and what are white collar criminals. I mean, they, they, I think they have this perception that, um, you know, we're, we're serial offenders. I mean, and, and, and in most yeah. cases, while there are um, most cases, that's not the case, um, whether it's a, an incorrect statement and not saying it was unintentional or anything like that, whether it's on a on a mortgage application or whatever particular you know situation it is. And so I don't people don't realize that in, in, in a lot of our cases, it's not a, um, you know, we're not serial offenders out there preying yeah. on, you know, old people and, and, and yeah. you know, you know, indigent and, you know, draining their bank accounts. And, and, and it's yeah. a tough perception to, to, to overcome. It is. I think that most people, I know that the women that I work with, um, have all the same attributes, the characteristics. They they're fixers. They are people pleasers. They can't say no. They're caregivers. So when one thing goes wrong, their immediate reaction is to fix it, right? And by any means, fix it. And mm-hmm. once that is fixed, they now have to fix what they created, and it's a constant 
um, snowball effect where you're constantly trying to fix something that is not fixable in, in some respect. And I mean, I think that the recidivism rate for white collar financial crimes is something like 93% do not right. recidivate. Um, and it's crazy that the stigma, like I've said, is a lifetime of having a felony on your record. And I don't think if I wasn't self-employed, I don't think I'd be able to get employed here. I have two master's degrees going for my doctorate to be self-employed. And, and mm -hmm. I don't think if I was going to look for a job right now, I would be able to get one. I mean, I know that these women coming home because of COVID, the jobs are scarce as it is. They cannot find a job because of their, their background. And, um, well, um, you know, that that's interesting that you bring that up because um, in, in a couple of ways, one, you know, the, the, the guys that I served time with were all fixers. Mm. And I don't mean the, you know, the, uh, you know, the guy in the background pulling yeah. the strength fixers, yeah. um, you know, the, the pejorative term, but you're right. They're fixers. So they have a situation and, oh, this will solve that problem. And next thing you yeah. know, they're going down, they're going down a rabbit hole. It, it, it was in some cases, it's like, it's like watching an episode of Ozark where they're going to, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to, we're going to do it this way. And then you're, you're screaming at the TV going, no, don't do that. It's not going to work out. And, yeah. and that is a real common thread um, amongst a lot of the guys that, that I serve time with. And it certainly resonates with me because I looked at a situation and said, oh, well, if I do this, I can fix this. Okay. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, when you look at it that way, one, you're not thinking clearly anyway. You're traumatized by what's going on. And not that this is an excuse. It's, it's a reason why you're doing it. Um, and it doesn't make it right. But it's an uncontrollable situation anyway. And yeah. And trying to fix it like that, you know, nine times out of 10 is going to, you know, if not 10 times out of 10 is going to make it absolutely worse. Yeah. And that's a mistake that a lot of men and women like us make thinking that they can fix a situation that's unfixable. Let me ask you a question. Something that came uh -huh. up yesterday. Um, I'm doing my internship for school at the judicial branch in Connecticut. Uh -huh. Yeah. I remember you told and, me about that. Yeah. It sounds exciting. It's really been a wonderful program. Yesterday, we talked about restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And we we spoke a lot about we're, we're doing a piece on the victim services this week, which is difficult for me because I am on the complete opposite end. So I had a wonderful conversation with the victim's advocate for, for Connecticut. She had a case where there was a drunk driver who... Um, really for someone, they were drunk and they hit somebody, got to a car accident, was there doing, and the girl lost part of her leg due to the oh. accident. Terrible, terrible situation. And the drunk driver, rightfully so, got quite a bit of time. And I asked her if she had the ability to be brought together with her offender, would it help? And she said, absolutely. And I find that in our situation, because most 
financial white collar crimes are with have to do with banks or lenders mm-hmm. or they, they really aren't against particular people. Mm-hmm. I don't know if restorative justice would work with a financial crime. I mean, like I can't sit down with Wells Fargo. I did write them a letter. I wrote them a very lengthy letter after I came home to the president of, of Wells Fargo. And I started the letter off with, I defrauded your bank and I have to apologize. And it was a two page letter. And I thought I'd feel so much better after, but because I couldn't sit down and talk with him mm-hmm. and really show him the shame and how sorry I was, there really is that open-ended, I don't know, um, there is no restorative justice with financial crimes. I'm not sure how you how you feel about that. How would you? Um, I, I think it will depend on who. Um the victims are um in without going into a lot of detail um but in our case um and my case um there are members of my family who were directly impacted by uh and so there have been opportunities and hopefully there'll be continuing opportunities um, to make those kind of amends. And now to the extent, and, and, and when I say amends, I can't fix what happened. You know, all I can do is pay my restitution and do the things that I've been, um, asked to do by the court i haven't had the conversation with them if it made it any better for them because i don't know that you know that financial loss will ever i mean that financial loss will never go away yeah and i've been thinking about it recently uh, of possibly having some financial victims on the podcast to get both sides to see i mean i know when i got sentence when I got indicted and I pled guilty and I got sentenced Wells Fargo didn't show up so there was no one and I when I got sentenced the judge said to me you didn't say you're sorry and I thought to myself but they're not here I am sorry I'm very sorry I made such a poor choice it was the darkest moment in my life I made the worst choice in my life overstated my income on this application and at the time, I mean, I, I have since made them whole financially, but at the time it was a mortgage crisis. And I'm sure, you know, people in, in at Wells Fargo got fired because of it. I'm sure possibly the processor, right. yeah. you know, not, the underwriter. Not particularly for yours, but I mean, if you recall what was going on, they were, um, they would give mortgages to ham sandwiches back then. Yeah. So, I mean. And I was one. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not a ham sandwich. Well, I should not have gotten a mortgage. That would hence I overstated my income yeah. on the mortgage. Um, but you know, it's it's that's an interesting thought, though, because I have thought about um writing to this the 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 main victim of our case um i haven't done it i have thought about it um and 
you know, maybe that's something, maybe that's a path that I will go down at some point. I don't know if it will help them at all. Um, yeah. I know it will probably help you. Yeah. yeah. But I don't want to look, I think given the situation and it's not about me, you know, I mean, if anything, it's about the impact to them. It's the impact to the family. It's the impact to my family. So I, I am trying not to think about it in those terms. And I think that's the same thing too, is a lot of people don't understand how in communities when they know you've been to prison or indicted for a financial crime, they don't understand the shame and the guilt and the isolation. And, and I've said this several times, a few times on my podcast, I barricaded my house. I, I isolated myself for a year. Uh-huh. I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave the house. I was humiliated. And what I did to my family was horrific. I mean, they were affected so badly by my poor choice that my only the only thing I can do is consistently prove myself and that's what I feel like I have to keep doing is prove myself that I'm sorry and um I mean we've we've talked about it I still hold a lot of guilt um not so much shame I'm learning that people aren't perfect right and I am learning that so many people, I think the, the numbers are something like six out of 10 people are committing a, a felony every day and don't know it. Um, yeah, I've heard similar. I mean, I've heard similar numbers. I, I, I just, I mean, I, I understand the hiding part very well mm. because when, when, um, when I knew I was indicted, I was pretty, when, when, when I, once I was indicted, I, at the time I was, I was fairly active in, um, a community group. Mm. And, you know, when I found out about it and I happened to be, you know, I was doing some things for that. And as soon as I knew about it, I had to go into the next meeting and I had to resign. Um, because I didn't want a, the embarrassment of me being associated because I knew it would come out in the news at some point. Um, you know, it, it, and so I resigned my position and um, because I didn't want my problems to impact this group, you know, yeah. and, and the people that I worked with in this group, you know, I pulled them aside individually and I told them what was going on, but I, this was a town of 5,000 people. Um, yeah. You know, it was pretty tiny and, um, and that's, that's kind of how it started. And I started being a hermit, you know, I would freak out anytime somebody came into the driveway. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I lived out in the country. So if somebody came into the driveway, I'd be at the window going, oh my God, what's happening? You know, what shoes dropping now? Yeah. Uh, and Do you still so- feel that way? After all the time that someone knocks at the door, comes down the. I, yes, no. I do. I I don't like it. I don't like people knocking at my door. No, um, me neither. It kind of, I, it kind of freaks me out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often I will, you know, if I can kind of peek around. I don't have a door cam, so I don't know who's there. So yeah. if I'm not expecting anybody, I just kind of pretend I'm not home. Um, yeah, and if and you know if it's really important. Um, but I have to check because my PO comes around frequently. So, 
Yeah, yes. <laughs> I got I gotta be home for my feet. Yeah, you don't answer that call. You're that yeah. that knock. No, I, you're, you're... I'm gonna have I'm gonna have to answer that one. Uh, and and you know it was, but I, I mean, you know we're somewhat looked at, and this is true with anybody who has a a, a, a you know a crime in the background. Um, you know we kind of looked at, at throwaway people. And I mean, I get it. Everybody's got their own issues. I mean, this last year has been horrendous for everybody. Um, So, you know, as you mentioned earlier about people finding work or whatever, I, you know, I get it. We're, we're, we're on the low end of the totem pole. Um, But, you know, we're not, we're not disposable people. I mean, so, and I get mixed feelings too, is that because when we're, starting to speak out about things like as you do as jeff does and and other people you know that we that we mutually know um i get the sense sometimes that people think that maybe we're celebrating something and we're not really we're not celebrating the fact that we did what we did we're celebrating the fact that we're trying to overcome it you know and to be um you know, to be a better, you know, mother, father, uh, husband, wife, you know, member of the community. Um, mm. And I think that's something that, you know what, I think for the foreseeable future, it's something that we're, we're going to be, we're going to always have to be proven ourselves. And if that's, you know, I mean, if it is, if it is the case, then it is, you know, I don't know that there's a lot we can do about it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, yesterday uh, I work with a woman who, uh, the, the same woman who is on home confinement. And I don't know uh, if anybody knows when, when you go into, when you leave prison and you go into uh, the halfway house, you sign a piece of paper. I don't know if you did go, but I know I did. Find a piece of paper of what your restrictions are and you, you recognize mm-hmm. what you're one of those restrictions in Connecticut and the halfway houses are you cannot eat anything with poppy seeds in it. Because mm-hmm. if you are tested, it will give a false positive reading in a urine that you have either uh, I think it's opiates, right? Yeah, opiates. yeah, opiates. Yeah. Well, this 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 woman went to Dunkin' Donuts and they released this wonderful avocado toast. So she got the avocado toast. She's eating it and she looked down and there was these little black seeds in it. Oh, no. And she texted me a picture and she said, oh, my God, I just ate poppy seeds. So I said to her, it's it's okay. It's You just ate half of it. And immediately she called the halfway house and sent them a picture. And she said, I want to be transparent and honest. I ate these. I didn't know they were in this avocado toast. And last night on the phone call, she, her, um, her caseworker said to her, well, we have to, we have to do your incident report. Uh-huh. So she said, what do you mean an incident report? She said, well, we have to write up an incident report. You ate poppy seeds and you told me about it. So I have to give you what we call a shot. Um, when, when you do something wrong, they write an incident report and that instant report goes to the Bureau of Prisons and in prison, it's called a shot that you're given mm-hmm. a ticket, a shot. And I, and she called me up. She was very upset. And I said to her, look, think about what you did. You didn't try and fix it. You automatically did the right thing. 
you sent a picture, you owned up to it, and you didn't say, oh my God, how can I get this out of my system and drink vinegar and water and and, and wash it out? She did the right thing. And what she didn't realize was how far she had come. And I've known her for three years where her crime was the fact that she fixed everything and she was just constantly in this snowball effect, taking out loans, fixing, 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 she finally broke that mm-hmm. and didn't try and fix it. And I was so proud of her. And I spoke to some other people about it that have not been justice impacted. They had no idea what I was talking about. None. No. And they were like, well, why didn't she just, you know, it, and I said, no, it's, that's not the point. The point is she could have Right. Very easily got whatever was in her system out of her system, but she didn't do that. She did the right thing and owned up to it. And I think most financial, most white collar crime offenders go out of their way to make sure they do the right thing. I have to check myself often. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really proud of her. And I think the community needs to know that it's not that, you're right. We're not celebrating. We are trying to evolve. We're trying to take these characteristics and rethink how we do things. And that's hard in, in any mental health arena. I mean, trauma, anything that you go through, you need to cognitively say to yourself, how do I change my behavior? And, well, um, yeah, and, and you don't, and unfortunately, if you've, you know, for anybody who served time in prison, that's not easy to do when you're, I mean, it's doable, don't get me wrong, and yeah. a lot of people do, but it's not naturally, especially if you serve time in prison, it's not naturally set up right. to look at the behaviors. There are classes and there's certain, you know, CBT type, you know, CBT based, um, you know, classes, which is most of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not taking them, right. And if you're not using that time, just being in prison, it's not necessarily going to help you with those things. You have to, you have to want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to sign up. Um, I know you did. You did everything because I was emailing. I did, as, I did as much as I could just simply because one, I didn't want to be bored. Um, and, you know, it made the time pass faster. And, and, and the truth is it, 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 you know, there was, if you apply yourself, you can get things out of it. It's just, you know, some things you'll get more out of than, than not. It just depends. I mean, and that's what I find interesting too, you know, with the community that we have, and that's that's kind of a strange word, community, but you you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, I look at, you know, some of the people we know and, you know, including you and Jeff and others, and I look at the things that y'all have accomplished and I'm like, damn. I mean, it's really impressive to the extent that I think of it and go, well, I wonder if this, you know, if we didn't travel down the road we were on, um, probably wouldn't be doing the things we're doing now. You know, I mean, absolutely, I agree. You know, and and we'd still be sta- saving or living the same lifestyle. Um, yeah, and you know, we'd probably be insanely unhappy. Yeah, um, 
Um, it, it is true. I know that my experience and my journey, albeit that I've gone through a lot of judgment and trauma was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I often wonder where I would be, like you said, if I definitely would not be in school again, I would not be doing these podcasts. I would not be trying to reach out to help both victims and offenders. I, I wouldn't be doing that. I'd still be working in the same field, doing the same thing. And I was very, I was miserable. Like I said, I was a ham sandwich. I had no feeling the everyday grind. It was me going to going to work every day, doing that everyday grind and never taking a moment to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did you, have you ever, have you looked back? Like I, I, I know I've done it a couple of times and I've come to the same conclusion, but did you ever look back and say, what was the point where your priorities got screwed up you know what i mean i mean i know where mine was and i get and i see it um and i'm and and i'll share that in a minute but i was just curious if you've ever thought of that because i know i have and i go boy if i had just not made these couple of lifestyle choices let's say or decisions um you know it, it, it it things might have turned out differently I know the exact moment. In fact, I brought the scenario and I'll share that. I brought it to an attorney who said to me, don't do it. Uh Um, I took on a partner in my business to grow my business who was an attorney. Uh And I was told, don't, don't. Why do you want to give part of your business to someone else? You you got a great thing going. Why do you want to grow it? I wanted the one-stop shop. I, I had a title company and I wanted an attorney, a loan officer, everybody in one space where someone just needed to come to and they didn't need to grow. And it was a grandiose thing on my part. It was quite narcissistic. I had my whole family working for me and I felt I needed to prove myself, my father, that I can make it better. And it hmm. didn't need to be better. It, didn't it was good need- enough as it, it was it was better already. It was better already. And um, no one needed to make a lot of money. And I mean, we did, you know, in that business, you just don't. And I have found coming home, I, I have a title search company that I have ranked down to minimal. And we are doing, my daughter's taking it over. And we're doing a phenomenal business because bigger is not better. See, that's interesting because in my, in my case, it was somewhat similar. And I started, and I remember I was, I, I was living in Las Vegas at the time. And I remember money started going to my head. And what I mean is it skewed, it skewed my priorities. Mm. And I was traveling a lot Um, and the job, I don't get me wrong. I I loved the job. I was working for an advertising agency in New York city and that was going good. I mean, it was going really good. Um, But 
you know, I, I had accumulated some money. I'm like, well, I'm going to need to, you know, I really, you know, I mean, I was making plenty of money. I didn't have a problem. I could pay my bills and mm. I could put money away, but I needed more. Mm-hmm. And that need for more started me down a path of, well, then obviously more is better. Yeah. And I started neglecting my family and my kids. Yeah. And that just, and I used all sorts of different ways to justify it. And it just started snowballing and snowballing. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over, it happened over months and then it happened over years. Um, And, you know, I thought I was the most important thing ever. Yeah. Until I found out, until I found out I wasn't. <laughs> that was me. Mine wasn't even a mine wasn't even about money. Mine was about being the best and having my father say to me, I'm proud of you. And I did the same thing. And the funny thing is, is I thought I was the best. I thought I can juggle it all. But now I look back, I never missed one of my kids' functions, but I always had a laptop with me. I was always working at their function with a laptop. I was glued to this laptop. I had it with me 24-7. So I wasn't really present. Uh I was physically there, but I wasn't present because I was always trying to build something, do do better, do better, do better. And, And I guess in some way... I still do that, but I do it with a different sense of importance. Uh-huh. The importance to me, the, the level of importance has changed. My family is number one. I will never put them in the back burner again. And the things I've acquired, I don't care about. I care about experiences now. Um, taking my parents away for their 60th anniversary for just two days to me was the most, I mean, they're 82. It was the best weekend I've had in probably 10 years with them or visiting my daughter for a weekend in Maine, just to pop in those experiences. I'm present now. I'm emotionally present where I wasn't before. Well, and and do you think that, see, I started picking that up, you know, that gratitude for things literally when I was in prison because there is nothing to make you figure out all the things you don't need when you, when you have to live out of a, uh, a little small locker. Okay. You know, where you have all your clothes, your socks, everything you need. And, you know, you know, so you're grateful when you get, oh, they had a new pack of crackers at the commissary <laughs> or, oh, somebody gave me some gum. I'm not supposed to have it, you know, I, and, you know, so nothing will give you a sense of gratitude. Like, like that kind of situation where you become thankful for all the little extra things that people wouldn't give a moment's thought about yeah. On a day-to-day life. Yeah, and that's what we talked about Monday night. Um, we had our 20, 250th meeting Monday mm-hmm. night on our support group and our our we spoke about gratitude. And I, I have a lot of friends that say, why do you why do you do that? You don't need to go to that support group. You, they don't understand that that those people have become family to me. 
Absolutely. Those people, yeah, they didn't, they helped me understand. They helped me get through the horrible parts of prison, the, the physical horrible parts of prison. I mean, having to um, self-surrender that first day, being scared. But then you realize, wow, who really loves you? My kids and my husband never missed a weekend visitation. And we were close to, we live close to, to Danbury. So we're an hour away. I was very fortunate. And the people that I thought would be there for me absolutely just bailed. And um, it gave me a complete sense of gratitude of what, and you're right. I had a pair of Crocs in me, <laughs> and I wore those Crocs today. I love Crocs today because of them. Did you bring them home with you? I did. I but well, I had two pair. I left one for another woman. I brought another pair home because I thought I didn't even know anything about Crocs. So I'm like, oh, this is a prison shoe. It's not a thing that, oh. that you can get any sort of stuff. Oh, and I, I and it's funny, I brought some stuff home from prison too, like my little book light. Okay. Yeah. And, and and I know uh, I remember the day I got picked up um to come home. You know, and it was a, a bunch of us that got out. There's about 35 of us that got out that day. And oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it started out as 50, they put us, 50 of us in, um, there was about 50 of us that were put into um, quarantine. And then, you know, if you remember back this time last year, they were, they were messing around with the qualifications, not messing around, but they were the, the eligibility requirements. Yeah, so yeah, the eligibility. Uh, yeah, about 15 guys got pulled out, which was heartbreaking to see them get pulled out and put back into regular population. But um, a lot of us went down the road to the, uh, to the, to the quick trip or whatever it was. And we went into the restroom in there to get changed into our, clothes i saw guys just dumping their stuff into the trash I'm like, no i think i'll take this home i'll take this home but yeah like i brought on my little book light and just this kind of reminders of what you don't need or how much you know little things you need yeah yeah and it's funny because you know you go into prison and you change they put your clothes in a box and they send them home you but they had sent him home and so i said to my husband just bring those i'll change into those and not realizing holy crap i gained 20 pounds oh yeah food was just all carbs i gained 20 pounds i couldn't get my jeans on i was devastated i had to wear my gray sweats so i'm thinking you know what it doesn't matter because it's just things it's just um I didn't care about them anymore. You know, it's uh, it, it was just a crazy thing that I, I know you've lost a ton of weight, right? Yeah, I lost about anywhere, somewhere between 30, 40 pounds. I, I find that's the difference between the men and the women. Most of the men lose weight where the women, they, they have cheese and crackers constantly. And all they do is... Um, had these little get-togethers to talk out feelings, eating cheese and crackers, because that's what's on commentary. And um, most of them go and 
<laughs> I know. Well, you know, it, it, it's it's funny because, um, you know, we we if you're not getting out and doing things when you're there, I mean, it's going to make it very difficult. Now, I could imagine that if you know we were on quarantine, we were kind of on lockdown for a while leading up to when we go, but you know, six months of that, yeah, you could definitely pack on some weight. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're fortunate. I mean, it was fortunate that that didn't happen, but yeah, you know, I mean, I look at all the things that have kind of transpired and I, you know, I mean, all in all, it, it, I'm, I'm happy that it's turned out the way it has. I mean, if somebody said to me, would you change anything? You know, if I could have, if I could have avoided those early mistakes, would I? Yeah. I mean, I'd be stupid to say I wouldn't, you know, I would like to think, oh, I wouldn't change a thing, but I, I don't think that's reality. I think we would yeah. if, if we had to. Yeah. Um, but what I get, you know, really inspiration from is, is, you know, the people in the group that are, um, you know, I look at all the great things everybody's doing and I look at who they're helping and, you know, I'm just, it gives me something that I can, that, that I aspire to at this point. Yeah. I feel it. it I feel like for me, I talk to a lot of women that want me to get involved in trying to change policies and, policy change. And I really feel that in the criminal justice system, there really isn't going to be a lot of change, no matter how hard you work. So for me, I think helping with the emotional piece to it with both women and men and victims as well, I think that that's the only change I can make and I try and give back as much as I can because that's what my I mean my doctor is in social work so I look at things very differently and being through the system I look at things even 10 times more different different I mean there's no common sense when it comes to sentencing there's no common sense when it comes to where people are going to prison it they say they want you close to your home. However, it's decided by a designation center. Most of the time they try and, and do the best, but I know women that have got sent to Texas that live in Connecticut. You just, right. There's no but, common sense. I, you know, something you brought up, I don't know if it was one of our group meetings or whatever, but I, I think that, you know, all these, I know people talk about big changes, big changes, mm. big changes. Mm. And I really think, progress and and this is not my idea this is something i heard and i think you said it is that i think progress comes from the small steps okay um you know i know people say well set a big goal you're likely to achieve it well that's true maybe in your own personal life but when you're dealing with uh governmental agencies and politicians and things like that i think it's the small changes over time that are going to make things better. I agree. And that is why I speak at universities. Uh, people want me to go up to Washington and speak. But for me, if I speak at universities, those are, are those people are good. Those kids are going to be our next senators, congressmen. That's where the change is going to come. Educating the youth on who are in 
you know, you go to Yale, you go to Harvard, you go to the larger Ivy League schools and talking to those kids who are in the political sciences and want to make a change in politics. That's where I think the education has to come in, the real life education, not just the textbook education. So oh, that's what I try and do. Yes. Well, and, and, and part of the problem that we have now too, is that, you know, everything is, is on social media and mm-hmm. all this, and there's this general kind of outrage machine and that doesn't really help um, the people that we're trying to help. Yeah. The people that you're trying to help. I mean, if anything, it make it makes it worse. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that that small incremental changes, like I like you had this idea um, was that what about, you know, after X period of time um, that you're able to, if you've not recommitted, uh, if you've done what you needed to do, that you can get your record expunged or it's kind of like voting rights. I mean, yeah. here in Oklahoma, I can't, I can't register to vote and I can't oh. vote until um, as far as I know is until I'm off my supervised release. Okay. In Connecticut, okay. I voted immediately. Right. See, I can't, hmm. I can't. So, um, that I'm mean, looking forward to that. I can't wait. I mean, I, yeah. I never will take voting for granted ever again. I haven't been able to yeah. vote in, in, in since 2013. Um, but you know, changes like that would make a big difference. Yeah. And that's very important to me, that change. And that's something that I aspire to continue to work on. I had a friend, um, a friend's son-in-law call me about two weeks ago. And he called me because he knew I'd understand. He had a state charge when he was in college. And it was a drug charge that he had. And it's been 10 years and he called me up and he said, today's 10 years. And I didn't know at first what that meant. And he said, now when someone does a background check on me, it doesn't come up. After 10 years, wow, a 10, state yeah. check doesn't come up. And, and I said, oh my God. And I've celebrated with him how amazing that That's had, wonderful. Right? Because I, we will never get that chance no. currently. In the current administration, the currently the way it is, we will never get that chance to say, if a federal tech is done, it won't come up because I'll be 80 and it still comes up. Mm-hmm. And the only one that can change that is the president. It's We can't go for a pardon. The governor can't help me. Only the president of the United States can do a pardon. And most of the time they do clemencies, which is very different, or commutation. I think people mistake a clemency and a commutation for a pardon. Oh, it's not. Yeah, clemency and, and anyone who's watching a clemency and a commutation just changes your sentencing to you either get out of prison early or they'll cut your sentence in half or cut it down, but it doesn't take away the felony from your record. Right. And that to me, there should be something. And I, and I would think it would help with recidivism rate in any felony for a federal crime, if you have something to work towards that, you know, in 10 years, if my record is clean without even a driving violation, I will no longer be a felon. I think that would make 
all the difference in the world to people coming home. It'd be be mental health, even it's depressing to me thinking about the fact that no matter how old I am, I will be always a felon for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I don't with with every the way things are, um, you know, unfortunately, our, our, our politics has turned into culture wars about everything. So yeah. I don't see that, you know, I don't see that changing much anytime soon. But, yeah. you know, but there are there are probably inc- there are probably areas that, you know, it could be accomplished in and, and, you know, hopefully small changes over time will add up. But, yeah, you know, that's just things that I mean, ordinary people aren't going to work for those things. Um, no, I think and it's, it's going to be it's going to be people like like us and people who are yeah. interested in it. Um, yeah. And that's why I think it's important to educate communities, and educate people who are not involved in the system, because so many people. And he said to me, when will your 10 years be? And I said, oh, no, it's not <laughs> like that. For no 10 years. And he didn't understand. And and um I felt, wow. And I haven't heard anybody really speak about that in our, in our community or even arena. I've not yeah, heard I've politicians. Heard yeah. yeah. I've never heard politicians fight for that. They fight for um, different sentencing. They fight for better conditions. They fight right. for, uh, but they don't fight for that lifelong felony go away right i mean and and the things you mentioned are all worthy goals i mean but you're right i think that that's i think that's something that needs to be um you know advocated for just like they advocate for restoration of voting rights i mean i think that's really important um you know i'm not a gun owner um and i'm not really interested in being it but that's another you know it's gone it's gone for life now yeah i i you know i served time with some guys who were avid hunters okay mm. and avid gun owners now granted some of them <laughs> used them in their crime but you know uh, <laughs> you know uh, but at 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 some level you know if you don't have that you, you should be able to earn back some of your rights yeah. And and hopefully that that's something that, you know, maybe, you know, new people that come into the group and they'll find that as they're as they're calling. I mean, because I was reminded of that, as you pointed out, that I'll always be a felon as I put a job in an application in with uh, um, and they have an Amazon distribution center. So I put in an application there and I'll be. um you know, I had to do some background check things with them and I just got the background check report and you know, all the things I said would show up, showed up, but it's, you know, it's a reminder that it ain't going anywhere. Yeah. It's um, definitely not going anywhere. No, but um, and, yeah. one blemish, I think on your record, I mean, I'm 54 and it, now it's been, my crime was in 2008 when it so, happened I hadn't, I, it's still, still to this day, I've never even had a speeding ticket, never had a parking ticket, a speeding ticket. And I can't even say I have, yeah, I'm, I'm proud. I have no record because I, I made such a detrimental poor choice that affected the outcome of the rest of my life. Yeah. Well, I still forget, like when I'm driving and things, if, if I see a, a, um, you know, a police officer or something coming down the road with the lights on, I'm like, Oh my God, what did I do? Did I go through yeah, the light? Too. Did I speed? I, I, I freak out, but you know, it goes back to the whole knocking on the door thing. I don't like answering doors either, but you know, I guess yeah. that's just, you know, it's a trauma. It's just, 
It's yeah. the PTSD. Uh, it's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, people, people said to me, oh, please, you, you did the crime. I, I hate hearing you did yeah, the crime, do too. the time kind of thing. Yeah. You know what? I did do a, I didn't, I, I committed a crime. I did my time. Right. And I still, when you're going through that system, trauma is created just like it is created for you create it for the victim, which gives you even more trauma that you've, you've created this trauma for for a victim and then you've created it you've gone through it so you're traumatized by the system that is so I don't want to say corrupt because there's so often it's not but then it's not equal so some right. prisons are worse than other prisons and I was very fortunate to be in Danbury I had wonderful COs I had wonderful case managers I I hear horror stories compared to what I went through. So I'm also blessed there and grateful. I could have been in a hardcore real jail where there was mm -hmm. bars. I didn't have that. No. And, and, you know, and, and the same way. I mean, El Reno was, hey, I was fortunate. It was two hours from the house. So it made it easy for the, the family to visit. Um, I wouldn't say the COs are wonderful or the case managers. I mean, my case manager was actually okay. Um, yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, it, look, I, again, it's a lot of things could have been a lot worse. I was able to yeah, get a job. It, it I was able could. to, I was able to make the best out of the situation. Um, yeah. and, and that, and I mean, that's really all you can do. And I, and I don't like that whole, don't do the crime if you can't do the time thing, because yeah, it's just, I really, um, because let me tell you the halfway house for me is where I have so much trauma from. It was horrible yeah. for me. I had to go to the Hartford Hartford Halfway House is not a place for really anybody. I don't care what crime you've committed. It's really not. There's drugs going in and out of there, left and right. It's state and federal women. And um, I, I'd be sitting in my room. Federal had the, the bottom floor. And, I, and I'd be looking out the window and there'd be a basket going, being pulled up with drugs in the basket. And there was two women that got pregnant oh. while they were in the house. It was terrible. Oh my God, that's horrible. It, yeah, they needed to make a lot of, lot of changes. And I know that they are starting to make those changes because the staff was, they treated the inmates at the halfway house absolutely horrible. They called them clients. Um, it, it was a very bad experience. And then when I got home, I was so grateful, but then I had, I, I always, I always, I have to say it. And it's funny because our producer once said to me, you sure you want to say that, but I will, I have to shout out every single I know. Podcast. I'm I shout out to my neighbor, Robin Hunt, who is a retired <laughs> Brantford police officer. She was horrible to me and still is to this day. I've never had a conversation with her, but she's very judgmental made sure the whole neighborhood knew I was felon and, and tells the neighborhood that I'm not trustworthy and they should not speak to me. And, um, I still live with that every day and it's 15 years later. And well, um, when you see her, when she mm -hmm. drives by, you just wave and you, I you, do. Can tell her, you can tell her I said hello too. I do. I sent her a Christmas card. Um, <laughs> I'm all about forgiveness. <laughs> I love it. So I, did, I did send her a Christmas card. I know. I know. And, but you um, know what? I mean, I, it, it's funny. I, you know, we've developed some pretty thick skin. Yeah. And, um, but I, I think that has also come from the change of priorities. Yeah. Um, 
that's what I don't understand. We have, I have gotten a fit in with this one situation destroys me. It really bothers me. I have new neighbors next door and now they have this whole perception of me that is not accurate at all. And it really, it shouldn't bother me. I should just fluff it off. Hey, the, but that's the only situation now for some reason. It bothers me so much that I bring it up every podcast. So, and um, I'm sorry. I, I, I just love, I just love the fact that you do it. I do. Oh my God. I just love I it. I have to. I, but and you hopefully know, I, somebody will see how much that actually I laugh about it, but how much it hurts underneath is why. Well, that's why we're, I mean, that's why we do it, obviously. Yeah. That's why you do it. I mean, and I know that. Yeah. And, and I think anybody who's, you know, in, who's been in your situation or our situation, I mean, they get it. You yeah. Know? Most, most, most people, most people won't get it, but. No, you they, know, they, they just won't. You know, you know, we love you and we get it. Believe me. Yeah, I know. And, and that's, I want my viewers to know too. It's, it's the hurt underneath that we don't show. And I try not to, I'm really trying hard not to show a lot of vulnerabilities, but I have to, I mean, in, in being in a, doing a podcast, which by the way, I will bring up to all of our listeners and to Bill, because I don't think, you know, um, or, or our, our producer, Ryan, who, who doesn't know, I am searching now for a real criminal justice cafe facility where we can oh. open it up and put a stage like a TED talk for uh -huh. anyone in the criminal justice community to stand and tell their story, whether it be a correctional officer, someone in law enforcement, an inmate, a prior inmate, whoever. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking for facilities outside Supreme Court, around Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, that we can go to and just have a real interaction. It's so hard. We do these podcasts because really because of COVID, but they do, it's the easiest way to get our message out there. But I think we're lacking it. I can't touch you. I can't say, oh, yeah, well, know. you know, yeah. you're lacking in that personal realness. Mm -hmm. You know, you can, you can see by our faces, you can hear by our conversations. I've been called, you know, you get a lot of people that think the podcasts are, there's an agenda. I have no agenda except to educate and help the community. And you can't feel that, I don't think, unless you're in person. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, because there's a couple of, um, I mean, there's a couple of, uh, I mean, you've got, you doing the podcast, Jeff, and there's a few others that I think, really i see i feel it because i'm i i i i relate to it yeah um but I, I i think people you know if they especially in this format especially if you just listen to it like i don't watch the podcasts i listen yeah. to them yeah because i don't like my eyes to get distracted or whatever um and if you really listen i mean you can definitely I mean, you can feel it if if you if you yeah. let yourself open to it. I yeah, mean, I, I, yeah, I believe that. I, I believe that you can, and I believe that most people can if they give themselves a chance and listen to the words that people are speaking. But I, yeah. I think that's I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah. I, so that's what we're working on now. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm very excited. Absolutely. About it. Well, and it should be good for real estate. Well, wait a minute. I guess real estate prices, not home-wise, but I would imagine 
the cost to lease a place would probably be lower considering a lot of the, the, business, the businesses that might have closed because of COVID or the vacancies that didn't get filled. So yeah, there's that a might, lot of coffee shop vacancies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh man, that's great. Yeah. Well, so when I, when I get off home confinement, I'll be, yeah, I got it. I'll be traveling back east. And I won't Ooh. have a rigorous, um, selective process like TED Talk does. <laughs> you have to apply to do a TED Talk, to actually be on a TED Talk stage. You apply and oh, sometimes sure, you don't yeah. get back. And um, we will have an open forum. There you go. So. Oh, I like that idea. I do. Yeah. And you could, we could have, uh, you could have your, uh, when you get it set up, you can have your reunions there. Yeah, exactly. Right. That'd be very nice. It, it'll be great. And hope, hopefully to me, I'm trying to bring the community as well as law enforcement, as well as victims and offenders together for restorative justice. And I really believe in wow. restorative justice. And to me, that's something, it, it gives people a commonality. Mm-hmm. Everyone drinks coffee. You sit, have a cup of tea, drink coffee, have a biscotti maybe, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and listen to someone's true feelings and story. And I think that is something that would do pretty well and bring oh, yeah. people together. Come on, you could get a couple of, I mean, that'd be great. You could get a couple of some people that are quasi famous to come in and help yeah. open it up and get the, get the draw. Oh, I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. So we have our new logo, which I hope everybody has seen. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I did. It's lovely. Mike did our logo. He's amazing. And I'm very happy with, with that. So we're kind of moving along here. And really, um, out there, anybody who wants to come on and talk about their feelings, whether their feelings are not for um, us, I, I'm open to having anybody, any conversation mm-hmm. on here. I think it's important to have both sides on and you know we'll we'll go forward with that yeah i mean and and again i think it's important for people regular people to understand i mean we're not i mean i'm not looking for sympathy you're not looking for sympathy i don't know i don't know anybody who's looking for sympathy it's just that like everything you know we're 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 all human beings okay and um we've you know, I'm sure you saw things at Danbury. I know I saw things at Oreno yeah. that I don't think I'll ever forget. I mean, I, I committed suicide when I was there. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and you you see how you see how black and brown people are treated in prison. Okay. You yeah. think white people get treated poorly? <laughs> Try being. Uh, you know, black, Mexican, you know, Hispanic, whatever. I mean, it's, and it's just, it's not about sympathy. It's about, you know, trying to get people's eyes open to a segment of society that nobody wants to look at. Yeah. Especially the mental health field, because prisons are used. I saw so many women that have such mental health problems that should not have been, and prison was making them worse. I had one woman who would go outside and she would swear there were helicopters flying around. And, and, and the thing is there was, you know, it was comical at times, but then if you really want, and I, I'm a people watcher, I watched her and my heart broke for her. And I was one of the only people who, one of the other women that went up to her and I befriended her. And she, 
unbelievably smart. She had her doctorate in science behavior, but her mental health was so bad that she thought she started seeing things. She was, she had a 10 year sentence and um, for a conspiracy charge, which many people don't realize that conspiracy is actually worse than committing the crime. It's easier for for them to prove because they really don't have to prove anything. Yeah. There's nothing to prove. Yeah. And and if you get, you get a conspiracy charge, you're going longer than if you actually committed the crime. So this woman had a conspiracy charge and, Wow, my heart broke for her because she had such mental health problems and a prison is not a mental health facility. No. It, it's just not. No. no. And I mean, it wasn't helping her at all. Yeah. So yeah. one of the guys I got out that got out when I did, um, he was there on a white collar and he got a 14, he had received a 14 year sentence. And at first, I he I lived with him when I first him and two other guys when I first got in there. I lived with them about nine months, and it took me about three about a month to figure out that. I mean, and he's a, he's a really nice guy. Okay, he's mm. he's about my age, but you see how people become so institutionalized. Yeah, and. You could tell by the habits and a lot of these habits, like he would sleep with his pants on. Okay. Yeah. Well, he slept with his pants on because somebody, you know, uh, at some other point, he happened to be, he, he got assaulted at one point and, you know, he couldn't, you know, he was sleeping in something and he couldn't really defend himself. So he always kept himself ready. He's ready. Exactly. Mm. That was the word. Mm. Um, and so you're right. They're not, they're not mental health places. And if anything, it just, it makes it worse. And then you come out of there traumatized. A lot of people do. I mean, and, and yeah. we're, we're some of the fortunate ones, but you know, yeah. that's stuff that, that what, you know, what you're doing and what Jeff does and others, it calls attention to that. And I think it's, you know, yeah, yeah I think yeah. it's, it's, it's needed. It's absolutely yeah, it needed. definitely is needed. Bill, I love talking to you. I do. I love having conversations with you because you're so, you you take such accountability and you aren't looking for sympathy and you do want to give back. And I just love that. So I, well, thank you. I, I have, I have great, I have great role models. Okay. I'm not trying to blow, you know, (laughs) smoke in your ear or anything, but I mean, you, I mean, I remember the times that we, we talked, um, I mean, and people should know we've never physically met, Yeah, but, no. but we've been friends for five years and, yeah. and, you know, the way that you were able to help me understand prison and what it was like and, and all those things. And I mean, it's just a gift that I can never repay. So I just, you oh, know, you're sweet. you, 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 you are one of my heroes, believe me. Well, we're going to talk transparencies. This is our second podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We did. And this is why I'm a week behind on podcasts. Um, We did a phenomenal hour. And I, um, I don't know if Ryan wasn't available. He wasn't available. He wasn't on. And I said, we can do this. And we record. Well, we thought we recorded the entire hour. And I was so excited. And I never hit the record button. So. (laughs) 
Oh, it gave us an excuse to do it. it. Gave us an excuse to do it again. It did. And we have a professional that is in the background making sure that we are being. <laughs> oh, and while oh. we're doing this, my, my son comes in from school and I usually, uh, I, I love to cook. So he comes in from school and I told him, I said, I'm going to be doing a podcast. And I said, I can't do my thing. Like, I can't make you lunch or whatever. I'm like an Italian grandmother. Oh, let me cook you something. Um, so he's standing right here going like this. I'm like, and I'm trying to discreetly go, Get the hell, you know, uh, but anyway, it made it memorable. But I'm glad we got to, I'm, I'm glad we got to do too. it again. I am too. Thank you. And we'll have to do take three again. Okay. <laughs> but a no real problem. take three. We'll have you on again. All right. Jackie, I love you. You too. Take care. Have a wonderful Easter. And you too. I got bought a ham yesterday, so we'll see what else I'm going to do. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Oh, wait, before I leave, before Ryan what? shuts us off, I want to say follow us because I was told that I never give us our contact information. And I don't because I'm so into the conversation. So please follow us on YouTube. Uh, Instagram is at Criminal Justice Cafe. Facebook is at Criminal Justice Cafe. Twitter is at C Justice Cafe. And um, reach out if you have any questions you want to talk to Bill or I, please, evolutionreentry at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. 